Hello, and welcome back to the Ethics of Literature. Today, I want to do things a little bit differently, and for a few different reasons. Uh, first of all, and perhaps most obviously, this is our third week talking about Tolstoy, and there isn't a whole heck of a lot of new material to discuss here in the back half of what is art. Um, he does, in fact, lay down a more concrete definition of art, but it is virtually the same one that we saw in his essay on art. Uh, we do have a lot more criticism of a lot more uh, thinkers and artists, many of which are, in fact, super controversial, like uh, Tolstoy takes pot shots here at Dante, at Shakespeare, um, at Wagner, at Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Like, there's a lot for us to potentially unpack here. Um, but at the same time, those criticisms seem to be kind of confused, for lack of a better sort of explanation. Um, Tolstoy here is taking fire at a lot of potential problems, and while he does have a fairly systematic approach and account for a lot of those, the fact of the matter is that this whole passage, this whole discussion seems really dated here in 2023. Like, 150 years after Tolstoy wrote, or honestly closer to 130 years after Tolstoy wrote, a lot of the problems that Tolstoy identifies and a lot of the unethical behavior that he accuses Art of, of conducting has transformed. Um, so that's kind of what I want to do today. I do, in fact, want to talk about Tolstoy's definition, and I want to talk about the nuances there, and try and get at what exactly Tolstoy does sort of hold up as his ideal of what art is and should be doing. But when we get to the criticism part today, rather than staying 100% true to Tol Tolstoy, I want to use Tolstoy as a jumping-off point to discuss a wide variety of different problems that we encounter in art, things that he sort of addresses confusedly, but hopefully that we can put and or that we can articulate a little bit more effectively and a little bit more appropriately for our own experience of art here in the 21st century. The danger here, obviously, is that I'm going to be departing far enough from Tolstoy's original thoughts that I will be doing injustice to his work. But on the other side, like, it's real hard to get a cogent philosophy of art from Tolstoy just here in the back half of, of what is art. He's got too many problems with too many artists, and some of this seems to be contradictory, especially from a contemporary perspective. So, yeah, that's our plan for today. We're going to try and restate his philosophy, at least in its positive form, and then we're going to be looking at his criticisms kind of piecemeal and topically organized from a more contemporary perspective. So let's get into it. First off, let's look at his definition. We do in fact get a sort of reformulation of his definition of art here in this section. Um, specifically around chapters 15 and 16, we get to see sort of the, the same principles that he out laid out for us in his essay on art. Um, specifically, we have this like tripartite definition of what makes art art and what sort of separates it from counterfeit art. Um, namely, we have to have important subject matter, but here Tolstoy actually gives us something a little bit more concrete uh, than we got in uh, his original essay on art. Namely, there's two potential serious topics here. Um, now again, this idea of like the significance, the content of art, um, Tolstoy ties, as he did before, to the religious expression of the age, which I said in our last lecture was really ambiguous and not especially helpful, and I kind of just like kicked it down the, the road so we could discuss it this time. Fortunately, Tolstoy has clarified rather dramatically here, so now we actually have something more concrete to work with. 
according to Tolstoy, the primary religious expression of the age is, surprise, unity. Basically the exact same principle that he focused on in his essay on art. Um, which I find kind of interesting, all on its own. Like, apart from our philosophy of art here, this idea that Tolstoy's understanding of the religious expression of the age, the religious truth of the age, isn't exactly a typically Christian truth. Um, which is probably why he is totally okay with adopting, like, Buddhist thought or possibly even uh, Islamic thought, depending on how you interpret some of his passages here, to be in line with this religious expression. What's more, like I pointed out before, um, he does have some fairly theologically questionable statements that he just sort of drops off the cuff here at various points, especially towards the last two, two chapters when he's kind of expressing what is the future of art and, you know, what is the point of science today. Um, we are very much in, like, atypically Christian territory, and his theory of non-resistance, as Elmer Maud puts it, seems interesting but out of sync with a lot of Christian teaching. Um, that said, again, this is the fundamental principle. According to Tolstoy, the central truth, the central tenet of Christianity, the central religious truth of the age is unity, brotherhood, bringing people together. Um, but importantly, we are bringing them together at the level of the peasant. Like, Tolstoy hasn't abandoned his sort of reverse classism here. He is still very much adamantly against the elite and the rich people, the nobles with their perverse sense of art, as we saw with Baudelaire and Mallarmé, and now again with the likes of uh, Wagner and Beethoven's Ninth. Um, instead, we are supposed to be focusing on peasant art, and he holds that up as being sort of exemplary in its, uh, in its discussion. Um, but this religious expression, this idea of the unity among all people, takes two forms for Tolstoy here, and they are exemplified by the two short stories I had us read for the supplement reading this week. Namely, on the one hand, there is the truth that expresses God's greatness, a sort of a call to morality, so to speak, a, a recognition of the enshrined principles at the heart of Christianity as well as most religious teaching, exemplified by his story, God sees the truth but waits, i.e. don't trust your own wisdom, don't trust common sense, and instead know that God has your best interests in mind even if it doesn't seem like it. This sort of you know, religious teaching, explicitly religious teaching, is like the first category and the most important category um, of what art should be doing, according to Tolstoy here. Um, and additionally, this is something that many other artists he, he sees doing the same thing. Like, he points to Dickens, he points to Dostoevsky, um, he points to quite a few different different authors here. Um, but you can see this explicitly on, in the footnote on page 246. While offering as examples of art those that seem to be best, I attach no special importance to my selection for being... Besides being insufficiently informed in all branches of art, I belong to the class of people whose taste has been perverted by false training. Which is honestly kind of interesting to think about, that Tolstoy considers himself one of the perverted, um, that he doesn't trust his own judgment as far as art goes, and the targets that he's picking, on the one hand, he seems to be unnecessarily judgmental, just because he is more concerned that he accept or that he is like, inclined to accept garbage art, then he is worried that he might accidentally disqualify someone who is actually, in fact, a good artist, which may be, you know, part of the reason why I've had so many, you know, fights with him in the past, and also is certainly part of the reason why I'm going to give more benefit of the doubt to more artists than Tolstoy does. Um, 
And therefore, he continues, my old inured habits may cause me to err, and I'm a mistake for absolute merit, the impression of work produced on me in my youth. My only purpose in mentioning examples of works of this or that class is to make my meaning clearer and to show how, with my present views, I understand excellence in art in relation to its subject matter. I must moreover mention that I consign my own artistic productions to the category of bad art, meaning including War and Peace, Anna Karenina, some of the greatest novels that have ever been written, accepting the story God Sees the Truth But Waits, which seeks a place in the first class, i.e., you know, art celebrating God directly, celebrating God's morality directly, and A Prisoner of the Caucasus, which belongs to the second. Which, notice, he the first story, God Sees the Truth But Waits, aspires to the first class. Doesn't necessarily hit it, like Tolstoy considers the rarefied air of that first class art that actually does promote and encourage people to follow God's laws and, you know, itself celebrates God, that that is, like, not something that he necessarily does very well. Um, the one, the exceptions to this, like the obvious examples that he keeps sort of pointing at as examples of this kind of art are like the story of Joseph in Genesis, which like God sees the truth but waits, emphasizes God's overarching goodness and how, you know, the apparent evil or absurdity that we find ourselves in here on earth is in fact part of an overarching plan that God has for us. Um, but a prisoner in the caucus... Caucasus belongs to the second category, namely universal art, art that appeals to everyone, and again, especially the peasant class. Um, and honestly, a lot of Tolstoy's later work could probably be put into this category. Alyosha the Pot, Master and Man, many of these could be ascribed to this second category of art which appeals to everyone, which emphasizes this sort of common feeling among human beings. Um, so we have these, this is what the proper subject matter of art is. Either glorifying God, like God sees the truth but waits to the story of Joseph, or encouraging people to appreciate universal human values, like A Prisoner in the Caucasus does, like Dostoevsky frequently does, like Dickens frequently does. Um, those are the artists that, that Tolstoy is pointing to here as engaging in this kind of second form of art. Um, the second thing that very much characterizes good art is, as we talked about on art, its quality. Whether or not the art is infectious. Um, and again, Tolstoy is emphasizing the clarity here. Um, he is stressing that it shouldn't be stylized, that it shouldn't be incomprehensible to the average person. You know, this is where he very much is criticizing the likes of Baudelaire as far as poets go and sort of deliberately obscuring the meaning of their poetry from others, that, like, they intentionally make it a puzzle. Um, or the Impressionists, on the other hand, who, again, are sort of, as Tolstoy understands it, incomprehensible to the average onlooker, um, despite our sort of you know, familiarity with Impressionist style today, as we talked about last time. Um, and again, the goal here is infectiousness. That's the word that Tolstoy keeps using, or rather the word that Elmer Maud keeps using. Um, this good art, the art that communicates the Christian values, or art that, like, communicates the sort of aspiration to universal brotherhood, to the sort of common human experience, both of them should be clear. Anyone should be able to pick up this kind of art and appreciate it. It does not have to be reserved for a specific group or a specific class. And we'll definitely come back around to that. Um, again, the reasoning here is clear. Tolstoy has emphasized from the outset that his target is all of these excessive works of art, all of these 
you know, people who have devoted all of their lives or all of their energy or tons of money to producing something that only a few people are going to appreciate, either because they can't afford to get into this opera house or whatever, or because it is literally against their sensibilities in some way. It is unnecessarily artificial. Um, which brings us to the third point. Again, Tolstoy emphasized this in many of the essays we talked about earlier. He very much doubles down on it. Now, good art should be sincere. Um, it should intentionally and deliberately communicate feeling. That's the goal. Um, when an artist, according to Tolstoy, sits down to write or paint or compose or whatever, the goal in that artist's mind should be to communicate some feeling that they have to everyone who receives this work of art, to the audience that they possess. And he goes over this again. It's not just like I'm, you know, articulating the idea from on art and sort of positing it here. No, he deliberately goes over it and emphasizes that there is a difference between the counterfeit art that he points to, which is intentionally imitating or mimicking certain elements of other supposedly great artists, and the honest, sincere work of art that is intending to communicate what that artist feels at that moment as directly and clearly and infectiously as possible. That's what art is for, according to Tolstoy. And all of these various artists, your Baudelaire's, your Mallarmé's, your, you know, Beethoven in his last days of his life, or Wagner in his Nibelungen ring, um, they are all guilty of not being sincere in some respect, and pandering to some sort of artistic sensibilities that are, by their very nature, false, brought about by a whole bunch of art critics and noble thinkers who have lost the actual sense of what art is for. And this is how Tolstoy characterizes it. I should emphasize, before we move on into all the ways that these counterfeit arts can be and, you know, sort of repurposing Tolstoy to our own ends, we should stress Tolstoy sees contemporary art here in the end of the 19th century as being perverse, like perverted. Um, and he, he, he spends an entire couple of chapters talking about why this happened, namely how the, you know, art critics have sort of gradually lost sight of what art is supposed to be for, um, but also how it is perverted, what the, the symptoms of this perverse art is. Again, this sort of attempt to mimic styles and ideas from other artists, things that are supposed to be uh, poetic. You know, he talks about this one lady who presented this, you know, ridiculously over-the-top, like, tropey and cliched poem about this tragically beautiful poetic woman in this tragically beautiful poetic forest who is accosted by this, you know, beautiful poetic, like, huntsman and his beautiful poetic white dogs, like, all of this very William Tell, according to Tolstoy. He is emphasizing that, you know, as this woman is not an artist, sort of casually repurposing and reproducing old supposedly poetic images, so do many artists today do the same. Um, he, walking through the, his experience with the Wagner's Ring Cycle, you see the same thing. He's like, oh, and here's another freaking dwarf, and here's another freaking magic sword. Like, he's sick and tired of these recycled, reused images. Um, and on the one hand, I definitely want to confront that and recontextualize. On the other hand, I definitely want to stress for Tolstoy, this is the issue. 
It is the recycling of these images. It is the sort of cliched quality of these things. The sincere art does not rely on this. this these are the crutches of a hackneyed counterfeit art. Um, it is an attempt to duplicate what has already been, been considered artistic before. But the trouble here is that as much as Tolstoy does point to this and does have a very clear sort of understanding of what is broken about today's art, a lot of his criticism extends beyond that. You know, he very much considers Shakespeare to be a counterfeit artist. He very much considers Dante to be a counterfeit artist. And at least in theory, we might look at this and say, okay, it's because Dante is, you know, imitating other poets of his time. But Dante was a 15th century writer. He was, in fact, doing something original. He was, in all likelihood, trying to communicate his feeling in the same way that Tolstoy emphasizes that artists today are supposed to be, you know, trying to transmit feeling. In Dante's case, it was likely because he was lost in his own sinfulness and trying to understand what made the world good as well as evil. Clarify, you know, make sense of a universe that had ceased to make sense in Dante view. Um, I really doubt, at least, that Dante is entirely a superficial artist the way that Tolstoy makes him out to be, and Shakespeare goes double here, if anything. Um, but I should also stress part of the reason why I want to sort of confront Tolstoy and update him and, and sort of like discuss the, the problems that he has and try and get into like both the surface and, and the more complicated, more deep-seated issues that Tolstoy has is because, honestly, I've had a bit of a crisis of conscience reading this over the past few days. Like, I'm reading this book and I'm having trouble writing my own, you know, fiction at this point. And honestly, I wrote a very successful short story that a lot of my friends are raving about. And honestly, I'm grumpy about it because it seems like it was so much less work than a lot of the other work that I've been doing. Here I am wondering, as I must imagine Tolstoy to also be wondering, is my sense of art perverse? Have I, too, been perverted by a whole bunch of academics insisting that, you know, James Joyce is the greatest novelist who ever lived, and Shakespeare is the greatest writer in English who ever lived, and so on and so forth, and have I, too, lost sight of what makes art good and valuable and meaningful? Like, I'm thinking about this. This is not just a superficial academic, you know, discussion that we're having. I'm not trying to, like, educate here. I'm, like, literally trying to wrestle with this. Is it possible that Tolstoy is right and I have missed the boat as well? That I have been indoctrinated by these rotten teachers and rotten art critics? That all of this elaborate discussion surrounding these supposedly hallowed works of art is also messing with my head as well? And on the one hand, I am willing to entertain this, and I definitely do want to take this question seriously, and I definitely do want to sort of think this through for the purposes of my own art. On the other hand, though, it's going to take a lot of convincing from Tolstoy to get me to repudiate Shakespeare. Like, just a lot. Enough of the art that I venerate is on Tolstoy's good list. The Iliad and the Odyssey, Tolstoy also considers masterpieces, because they were apparently the highest religious expression of their time. Um, I'm not sure what the heck that's supposed to mean when Tolstoy is speaking to, like, universal brotherhood as being the 19th century message, while apparently it might have been something different in the 7th century BC, but whatever, I'm willing to roll with this. 
I tend to think there's actually a much easier solution here, though, namely that Tolstoy's opinion that all art aspires to unity could probably just be the principle all by itself. Those two principles that he keeps bringing up, namely that art should unify people, and on the other hand, that art is the expression of the artist to communicate their feelings to one another, you can probably combine those into one cogent philosophy of art and not have any more to say about it. Like, if anything, I suspect that Tolstoy may in fact be perverted by his time because the 19th century is constantly asking the question, what is our truth? What is this historical moment's truth? Whether you find it in Tolstoy or Nietzsche or Schopenhauer or, you know, Victor Hugo or indeed Baudelaire, Mallarmé, and half the people that Tolstoy hates. I think Tolstoy may be onto something more valuable than he actually knows here, in short. If that art aspires to unity, then at least that art is good art in some sense. If it, in fact, encourages dissension, encourages a sort of pride or holding one person above another, that is where I tend to get suspicious. Now, again, that's not what Tolstoy is saying here. Like, he holds up a lot of these classical artworks because they, you know, either do or do not like, abide by whatever that moment in time's religious expression was. But again, I find that so hard to apply that we're not going to, like, be able to contextualize it or, or appreciate it terribly well. It's hard to say why Dante isn't the religious expression of his day when it seems so clear that, it, that he is to so many and to people who actually are trying to appreciate what the 14th century was doing and saying. Likewise, it's really hard to say, you know, what was the appropriate expression of the 17th century's, you know, religious meaning and not have a discussion about how Shakespeare falls into that category. Like, somehow Moliere makes the grade for Tolstoy and Shakespeare doesn't, and I just, I don't get that one. Like, I love Moliere, and I do think that Moliere is a truly good artist and that he is often doing truly good art, but Moliere is also like, unnecessarily nihilistic and negative in ways that Shakespeare often isn't. And that is just really hard for me to understand. So I want to recontextualize. I want to try and get at why Tolstoy dislikes these particular works, what Tolstoy does find egregious, and try and come up with a more consistent theory than even Tolstoy has here, if that makes sense. So with that in mind, let's take a look at some of these specific things that Tolstoy has disagreement with, in the effort of coming up with something a little bit more cogent. And perhaps the most obvious thing, because Tolstoy just brings it up like three or four times over the course of the back half of this text, and we've seen him bring it up over and over again, but also because I have questions, let's talk about nudity. Like, obviously Tolstoy brings up frequently that he has a problem with all of these artists glorifying naked women especially. Whether it's Baudelaire celebrating the nakedness of women in his poetry, or whether it is various artists depicting the naked women, or alternatively, all of these art schools emphasizing that the first thing you need to learn when studying art is naked women and naked the naked body. Like, Tolstoy clearly singles out a lot of work that sort of glorifies nudity and stresses that it is inherently immoral. Now, I should stress, Tolstoy singles this out on the grounds that it's because it is not universal, which 
take a step back, we'll get there, but let's follow him for the time being. His argument is that, like, contemporary peasants would consider this either blasphemous or disgusting or, you know, vulgar, which, yeah, I have a lot of trouble on this one. On the one hand, I see what he's getting at. Like, when Tolstoy has that great moment where he's like, I recently was at the Academy Francaise appreciating these two great works of art that, like, were held up as the two greatest works of the time. One of them was The Temptation of St. Anthony by this guy, Volman. And I looked it up. I looked up the painting, and yeah, I definitely see what Tolstoy is getting at here. Tolstoy criticizes the artist because, honestly, it is just an excuse to draw a naked lady in a painting. And as Tolstoy puts it, you know, the artist is clearly very pleased with the naked lady, even though it is supposedly in the context of the temptation of St. Anthony. Like, let's actually look at that passage, because I find it really kind of telling here. Tolstoy writes around page 224, In the English Academy of 1897, two pictures were exhibited together. One of these, by J.C. Dolman, was the temptation of St. Anthony. The saint is on his knees, praying. Behind him stands a naked woman and animals of some kind. It is apparent that the naked woman pleased the artist very much, but that Anthony did not concern him at all, and that so far from the temptation being terrible to him, the artist, it is highly agreeable. Therefore, if there be any art in this picture, it is very nasty and false. Honestly, on this one, I couldn't agree more. I totally see what Tolstoy is doing here. Because here is a painting that is supposedly about the temptation of St. Anthony, i.e., here is Anthony tempted with a naked woman, and rather than being presented as evil or villainous or in some way disgusting, it's noteworthy that in the painting, Anthony really doesn't even seem to notice that she's there, but the artist clearly spotlights her. Like, literally, she is lit up while Anthony is cast into darkness. The animals, like, crowding around her are all just sort of shadowy and, like, clearly not emphasized. Like, everything that teaches you to appreciate art focuses your eye on the naked lady. And her nakedness. And that's it. The painting is empty in that sense. If this is supposed to be about temptation, then this is an artist celebrating the temptation, not the successful overcoming of the temptation, or else the presumably Anthony would have been spotlighted, but instead the temptation itself. Like, to sort of update this discussion, the, I immediately think of the old Swords and Sandals epics of the 1940s and 50s, where Hollywood producers would frequently, you know, create a Bible epic just so they could throw in an excuse to throw a bunch of naked ladies into the, paint, into the movie in order to sort of, on the one hand, titillate audiences, but on the other also supposedly be communicating a religious message. Hollywood got very comfortable doing that, very comfortable getting a pass from religious organizations for material that otherwise would have been considered too prurient uh, to either be passed by censors or alternatively to be watched by audiences. Here we see something similar. We have, once again, a painter trying to pass off what is essentially something very close to pornography as religious art, allowing for the titillation, encouraging that titillation, but at the same time, like out of the corner of their mouth saying that, no, this would be a bad thing because the subject of this art is, in fact, actually temptation. The name of the painting, the subject of the painting, lies in clear contrast with the way that the painting is presented. And I use this example because it is a really obvious one. 
because I can totally see what Tolstoy is getting at, and I've felt the same way a lot of the time. Now, on the one hand, you could definitely say it's because I'm a prude. Like, yes, that's, that is true. I do not disagree with this. I have expressed my prudishness on fairly frequent occasions in many other places. I don't apologize for this. But what I think is important, or what I think that I can offer as a prude, is I have a very keen sense of the difference between when something like this is purely titillating and when the use of nudity actually has a greater artistic purpose. I don't have a problem with sex scenes in general, whether it's in literature or in film or whatever. The trouble is, how are they deployed? Is it there just for the purposes of titillation, in which case I could probably go home and watch porn and much more effectively and much more efficiently get the same feeling, or does it have some really significant value to the work overall? There are good sex scenes and bad sex scenes. There are sex scenes that are clearly just gratuitous, thrown in to sort of excite the reader and keep their attention by using possibly the cheapest method possible, while also there are sex scenes that really get at the nature of sexuality or that get at the relationship between the characters or illuminate something beyond just, yeah, naked ladies are hot. <laughs> like, I get what Tolstoy is getting at here, but I want something more robust than this. For Tolstoy to say, the reason why I hate all of this nudity in painting or in like performance art or in literature is because it is not universal, because it does not appeal to the average peasant, well, I have some questions about this. Because here in the 21st century, we understand pornography to be a readily accessible art for everyone, and it is a low-class art, not a high-class art. We do not have, in general, large groups of common folk arguing against the evils of pornography. There are some, and I should stress, like, Tolstoy recognizes the peasants as being fundamentally religious in a way that we simply can't point to the contemporary American populace or indeed the, the contemporary worldwide populace as being inherently religious and thus opposed to this sort of titillative art. What I should stress, though, is from a pure peasant-as-peasant -peasant standpoint, I can't imagine that if we, like, transported a hundred peasants to the present and said, hey, you can watch all the pornography you want, go nuts, that all of them, or even most of them, would be like, no, it would be wrong to do that. Like, Tolstoy has a pretty romanticized notion of what the contemporary Russian peasant is like. It's obvious from his writing. If you read something like Master and Man, it's very clear that Tolstoy has a, like, dramatically increased appreciation for the peasant in this story than he does for the actual, like, rich person in this story. And I'm not buying it. Like, I am not buying that there is some fundamentally different set of morality that, these, that makes these peasants special. The lower class is just as immoral as the high class in different ways. And if, they're, and if Tolstoy is unwilling to see that, then that is Tolstoy's own failing, I think. Um, maybe I am wrong. Maybe the Russian peasant really was a very special class at one point in history, but I don't buy it. 
And at least my contemporary experience tells me that if Tolstoy is going to reject nudity, rejecting on the ground on it, rejecting it on the grounds that it is something fundamentally elitist and noble only, is really missing the boat here. Um, so let's talk about nudity. Because this is an issue. Like, on the one hand, I don't think that Tolstoy is wrong here. I don't think that he's wrong to bring up the subject of sex and sexuality as a means of selling paintings in the 19th century as much as it is, you know, in the 21st. We should be having this discussion. And obviously, a lot of the discussion surrounding the discussion of ethics and art is going to come down to, you know, what is prurient or what is just obviously outwardly titillating, either sexually or because it offers the, the prospect of violence or whatever. I think Tolstoy in our contemporary landscape would recognize that, yeah, it's not a, you know, rich people versus poor people discussion that we're having here. Yes, there are a lot of people who are in, interested in the church who will argue that, you know, one or another work of art is pornographic and therefore restrict their children from watching it or it being taught in schools, that hasn't changed all that much, and you could frame that as a low versus high class discussion. It would be rough, and it would definitely ignore a lot more of what's going on here, but you could do that. Um, what I want to stress, though, is, again, what is the sex, what is the titillation actually for? If we're going to have a discussion about titillation as a tool in art, then we should be having the discussion not in terms of, you know, class or classism or even religion and religiosity. We should be having the question insofar, we should be having the question of what is its use? Can it be used correctly? Can, or is it always immoral to employ this kind of, you know, imagery or, like, discussion or whatever? Is a sex scene inherently immoral, in short? And on the one hand, I'm tempted to say no. Like, obviously, as I just said, I've seen sex scenes that have been executed well, that do in fact communicate character, that do in fact communicate feeling, um, that do in fact explore discussions of sexuality, that are in fact frank discussions of the way that sexuality works. Um, and I honestly am not even that upset at deliberately transgressive uses of this kind of material. Like, I am not opposed to angels in America having, you know, the angel have sex with one of the characters at one point, because it is written to discuss a sort of ecstasy in the same way that the Roman Catholic tradition has occasionally explored ecstatic experiences, ecstatic encounters with various religious figures. It has a history that is being invoked there. Um, so I'm not immediately opposed to it. However, I do think that you are in dangerous territory every time that you go here. I think that where our contemporary outlook on art tends to be that we should throw in as much sex and as much titillation as possible because it will make more people read your book or make more people watch your movie or whatever, I tend to think that it is inappropriately handled in most cases. We assume that a sex scene will, by its very nature, titillate and excite, and therefore nobody is taking great pains to understand how a sex scene actually works or functions. 
I think the best discussion I've heard about this is honestly something that kind of came up in an extra credits video once upon a time. Namely that there's a kind of unpredictable reaction inherent to incorporating a sex scene, whether in a video game, or in a movie, or even in a book. On the one hand, you will titillate some people. Like, if you are sitting in a movie theater watching Fifty Shades of Grey, part of the reason why people are going to see that movie is because they want to be sexually excited. They want to be titillated. They want to feel that sort of sexual enticement. They want to imagine themselves in, the, in that position. And honestly, some of them are probably just straight-up masturbating. Like, I'm not going to apologize for, for that. I assume that that's at least part of the reason here. If not, well... I once again suspect we're all being rather naive. But on the other hand, if in fact you took like a cross-section of human beings, just across the board, and dumped them into a showing of Fifty Shades of Grey, like forced them all to watch it, the reactions would vary. You would get some people who would be titillated, and you would get some people who would be absolutely offended. You would get some people who would be disgusted. You would get some people who would be uncomfortably interested, like you would be encouraging them to engage in this sort of quasi-non-consensual sexual role-play. Like, there would be people who would maybe respond to this by saying, so rape is okay then? Like, all of these different reactions would be possible. So, if we in fact embrace Tolstoy's sort of overarching axiom here that this art is supposed to be communicating some kind of feeling, well, anytime that you decide to depict sex or sexuality or nudity or whatever, you are necessarily setting yourself up for a wider range of possible reactions and therefore a less predictable effort to communicate that idea or that feeling. If what you're trying to communicate is, you know, sex is enticing but potentially dangerous and ultimately tragic, that's going to be a really hard thing to come across if, in fact, people end up just watching your movie for the boobs. That's dangerous, in short. You will frequently be unsuccessful. As much as all those comedies of the 70s and 80s, which were fairly loose with their sexuality, tended to be targeted towards adults who should have been able to appreciate this and should have been able to, you know, separate the, like, titillation or the moments of sexual excitement from the overall message of whatever was being placed on screen, when ultimately a bunch of teenagers end up watching just those scenes over and over and you know, absence from the rest of the movie because that's the video they can get their hands on because, the, you know, porn is not readily available in the 1990s. That's a different situation. That's an artistic failing on some level. And we could definitely make the argument it is therefore, in some respects, immoral. You are playing with fire in a way that you wouldn't if you were able to communicate the same idea without resorting to this sort of prurient material. If you can say the same thing without using sex to say it, then you probably should, in short. Or else you are running the risk of getting some wildly deviant reactions here. And on the one hand, you know, I'm probably saying this and you're thinking, oh, Professor Kozlowski, you're being such a prude. You know, isn't it possible that people just need to calm the heck down and, and like, appreciate the beauty of the human form? Sure, but even at its, at its outset, we get into greater conversations of, okay, so what is titillating? Like, 
Obviously, when we talk about a sex scene, for many people, that means a heterosexual sex scene. But in all likelihood, a person who is gay or a person who has a different kind of appreciation for their own gender or sexuality may have, again, a wildly divergent reaction from what was expected. It is not unthinkable to have, you know, the male hero and female heroine kiss at the end of the movie and the response to be disgust rather than, you know, acceptance and recognition that, like, this is a proper climax for ever all the characters involved. We need to recognize that that doesn't mean what we used to think that it meant. And in fact, insisting that, like, all Disney movies end with love's true kiss at the end of the movie may in fact be deliberately excluding certain audiences, may in fact be alienating certain people, and not communing, communicating that happily ever after catharsis that the artist was originally trying to convey. That's a failure of art. Now, on the one hand, I've been emphasizing this as a non-moral, but rather a craft kind of issue. Like, using Tolstoy's definition, I've sort of collapsed the, the distinction between the good and bad art as moral versus immoral, and good and bad art as well-crafted versus ill-crafted. But that's kind of my argument here. Like, if we are going to sort of abandon a universal moral basis from which to judge the value of a naked person appearing on screen, then we've kind of got to appreciate exactly what this does to the craft. Whether or not you accept that nakedness put on screen is by its very nature titillating and evocative of sin or sinfulness, or at the very least, like, inappropriate base behavior, at the end of the day you have to appreciate that the art can stand or fall on scenes like this, and there is a great deal of danger undertaken because, again, different people are going to react in different ways. And even if we extend this beyond just pure sexual, like, content, if we extend this beyond just, you know, prurient material as I keep referring to it, even if we think of this not in terms of, like, sexuality or gender, but if we think of this in terms of material that is deliberately inflammatory, deli material that is deliberately titillating and perhaps dangerous as a consequence, if we think of rape scenes like we see in Game of Thrones, or if we think of, you know, scenes of sexual violence in various forms, we might very well be asking these same questions. We might very well be asking, is it moral to show a rape scene in certain contexts? And if not, then what is the context in which this could potentially be moral? How do you present a moral rape scene? Whatever the answer is, it's going to require incredible delicacy and an incredible mastery of craft. The, ultimate conclusion remains, it is going to be dangerous. Not only will you have to be morally walking that line, but you will also have to be artistically walking that line. So I definitely embrace Tolstoy's attitude here. Nudity and titillation is, at the very least, dangerous. It is playing with fire. It is something that we generally do not understand and cannot predict the reactions to. And as a consequence, it is not immoral to use it, but it is immoral to use it without incredible care, without very careful recognition of what that is going to mean to the various people who are going to pick up your work of art and try and appreciate it.
you have to recognize that by its very nature, this is, as Tolstoy would emphasize, exclusive. Not in the way that Tolstoy originally intended it, not saying that like only rich people appreciate or like sex, but rather recognizing that only certain people are going to like sex the way that you present it. Because your sex scene, whatever it is, will necessarily be heterosexual or homosexual. It will either it will necessarily be either cisgendered or transgendered. And as a consequence, you will be excluding some audiences. You will be saying to them, many people are going to watch this and be titillated, and that is my intention as an artist, but since you are not, you will not be considered a, a proper audience for this work. And that sucks. So proceed with, with caution here. Know what the results of this sort of artistic inclusion will mean. It is not so simple, it is not so straightforward, and there is, at the end of the day, an exclusive and therefore, especially in Tolstoy's lights, immoral quality to incorporating it. Now, I'm not going to weigh in on the pornography discussion. Like, the straight-up pornography as art discussion. At the outset of this lecture series, I very much said, you know, I'm not going to do the elitist thing of saying some things are art and some things are not art. And by extension, you kind of end up in the territory where it's like, okay, so Professor Kozlowski is porn art. And my answer kind of has to be yes. Like, yes, it is. Clearly, if I am going to be incorporating, you know, no clear standards between art and not art, the way that I talked about a couple lectures, lectures ago, I'm certainly not going to, like, double back on that now and say that porn can't be art. Um, what I will say, though, is that a lot of porn is bad art. Um, in the same way that we recognize that there is a sort of inherent exclusiveness um, of art directed towards certain tastes, of you know titillation being only capable of being felt by certain people in certain situations, we also need to recognize that porn is by its very nature exclusive. Um, it is only going to appeal to certain people's tastes. But what's worse about porn as a sort of broader societal thing is that we still haven't quite wrestled with the possibility that porn makes people worse. The idea that this encourages objectifying women or certain very misogynistic stances towards sexuality. This definitely has to be reckoned with. And we have to recognize that until we do have a pretty decent understanding of how watching sex, you know, causes people to respond both emotionally and intellectually, it's going to be real hard for us to, you know, argue that our porn that we have made has no negative consequences and that we should not be held responsible for it. That's oversimplistic. This is not to vilify people in the sex industry. Like, if people are in fact making money off of porn, I can't necessarily blame them as you know, entrepreneurs, but I can blame them as artists. Um, I can say that they are held to a certain moral standard and that certain kinds of porn are definitely going to contribute to negative behaviors. Like, I'm pretty sure there are there is still a thriving market for both child pornography and snuff films, whether or not they are legal. Those people should be held responsible, and therefore we're on a spectrum here, not a binary necessarily. So let us keep that in mind. I am not going to go so far as to say all porn is bad art. 
I will go so far as to say that all sex, sexual content in art, all titillative efforts, are dangerous. And we can go from there. Um, so let's get off of this particularly gross discussion and move on to the next thing that I kind of noticed that Tolstoy kept bringing up over and over again. Um, let's talk about the fictional, like, inherently fantastic or, you know, absurd elements of certain artistic creations. Um, Tolstoy seems, like, one of the things that Tolstoy kind of harps on pretty frequently, especially in his discussion of Wagner, like that whole passage where he's talking about, you know, I went to the to see the Ride of the Valkyries, and I had a terrible time, and here is all the silliness and all the foolishness that's going on there. Um, on the one hand, we should look at this and be like, yeah, it sounds pretty ridiculous. And obviously I've never sat for, you know, a performance of Wagner's Ring in the 19th century, like, even if I, you know, I have not admittedly seen the ring start to finish um, from, like, a contemporary opera group, much less, you know, what the 19th century was probably, like, propagating and, you know, the Russian 19th century at that. It may have been a pretty trashy production, even by 19th century standards, and we should recognize that. What we do need to sort of address here is Tolstoy seems to have a problem with not just the quality of the production, but the content of the production. For Tolstoy, Wagner is a perfect example of artificial, like, crass, imitative art. Um, and I want to take that apart, too, because this is complicated. On the one hand, Tolstoy argues that part of the reason why he's got a problem here is because it is an incomplete work of art. It is... Like, Tolstoy directly addresses Wagner's idea of the Gestamtkunstwerk, the idea that the perfect work of art should incorporate all of the other uh, arts surrounding it. Um, Wagner's Ring is deliberately a work of musical art, but a work of performance art. The costumes are carefully designed. The sets are supposed to be carefully designed. Every element, every aspect is supposed to contribute to this overall artistic accomplishment. It is all one art in some sense. This is the highest art, this is the perfected art, and Tolstoy is having none of it. Tolstoy literally goes out of his way here to stress, you know, if you are in fact subordinating the music to the performance, you are not letting the music do its own thing, have its own unity, and therefore you are depriving it of its artistic integrity. Instead of elevating all of these various arts, you are denigrating the whole lot of them, making it all into this sort of piecemeal Frankenstein's monster stitched together work rather than this complete, like, perfected work. And on the one hand, it's really hard for me to get behind this. Because now that we are here in the 21st century and have had a hundred years of cinema doing virtually the same thing, like incorporating music and sound design and costume design and set design, and as well as like skilled actors and actresses, musical numbers, you name it. It's really hard for me to see that like somehow a work of art is diminished by the different arts that are being incorporated into it. I've seen good mu musicals, musicals that have moved me. I love Wagner's orchestration, even like as a separate entity in its own right. And one of the things that Tolstoy specifically picks out here, the leitmotif, this idea that Wagner very much pioneered, um, this using a musical theme to sort of introduce and 
accompany various elements from the production. So like Siegfried has his own has his own theme, the sword has his own theme, the ring has its own theme, fire has its own theme, hope has its own theme. You know, it's like the way that Tolstoy describes it here, it does sound ridiculous. But when you think of like Luke's theme in Star Wars, or, you know, the way that the various themes interweave with one another in Howard Shore's score for the Lord of the Rings movies, it's really hard to see that that is not art. It's really hard to judge that, like, it is somehow diminished or lessened as a consequence of it being subordinated to this greater overarching production. I think Howard Shore's score on the Lord of the Rings is gorgeous. I think John Williams' score for Star Wars is gorgeous. And I think Wagner's score on the Nibelungen Ring is frequently gorgeous. Um, it communicates a profound emotion. I think that Wagner is, in fact, trying to do something there. He is following Tolstoy's argument on that front. So, on the one hand, I see that like having these arts sort of bump into each other is going to necessarily like cause sacrifices. Time isn't infinite. Sacrifices will be made. But that doesn't prevent a work from being a whole, complete in its own right, beautiful insofar as it sort of works as, as an independent art, like a score can, or alternatively as a thing that dovetails with the thing that's on screen. Like, do I think that the John Williams score of Star Wars is a great piece of music all by itself? Yes. Do I think that Star Wars is enhanced by John Williams' score? Yes. Do I think that John Williams' score is enhanced by Star Wars? Yes. All of these things are true. Or, or at least as I experience it, and it would, again, be really hard for me to say, and that is my perverted sense of artistic appreciation talking. This is a common reaction. I don't think I am alone on this front. I have had many conversations with many people who feel the same way. So if this is, in fact, this some elite perverted sense of art, it's an elite perverted sense of art that is so promulgated in our culture that it would be really hard to say that this is elitist anymore. Tolstoy doesn't have a leg to stand on on this one. But the other side of this, the other thing that Tolstoy kind of addresses and picks out, besides this whole Gaston Kunstwerk idea, which I think can contribute to great art, though chasing it isn't necessarily a great idea all the time. The other problem is the fantastic elements. Um, that's what Tolstoy considers truly imitative or like cheap, counterfeit in some way. The fact that there are all these dwarves running around doing things that dwarves just don't do, forging a you know sword in a way that is very artificial and inappropriate, or the fact that the dwarves like speak in the the random dwarvish language which he parodies in the text of of uh, what is art. On the one hand, again, you look at this and you say, yeah, that sounds pretty ridiculous. That sounds really superficial, and I bet if I were sitting in the chair, even for the best production of Wagner that I would ever expect, there would be something laughable about all this, something ridiculous about it. Some, you know, something campy, to, to put it bluntly, just because Wagner is aspiring to something true and meaningful and romantically profound and kind of missing the mark with a lot of this foolishness. But remember, that was something that the Romantics did fairly frequently. 
like, Goethe is okay with having monkeys run around on stage because it is ridiculous, because it is silly, and because it is, as he would emphasize, appealing to a lowest common denominator rather than appealing to some high artistic sensibility. Which is where this gets really complicated and messy. See, Tolstoy is criticizing Wagner on the grounds that here are all these luminaries of Russian society, great civil engineers, great noblemen, the Tsar himself perhaps, people who are supposed to know better, laughing and like appreciating and standing in some kind of artistic reverie as a consequence of what is essentially foolish and ridiculous stuff that's happening on stage. Tolstoy is offended that Russian society has sort of been duped into following this ridiculous nonsense and, and sort of like being in this emperor has no clothes situation where Wagner has been like they've been told that Wagner is important and therefore everyone is engaged in this mass sort of like psychological delusion where they're all convincing themselves that it's important even though it very obviously isn't. Tolstoy is saying this is a characteristic of rich people. But weirdly enough, like when I originally studied what is art and we were writing my original paper on the subject, I actually went and read Nietzsche's uh, the, the, the Case of Wagner as well, just as a sort of contrasting perspective. And Nietzsche makes the exact same argument that this is ridiculous and stupid and should not be in this, in this production, but says specifically because it is targeting the lower classes. The same stuff that Goethe includes to entertain the, the people who only paid a penny to get into the, into the theater is the stuff that Tolstoy is criticizing because it is apparently some sort of elevated, ridiculously artificial art form that only like perverted literary critics and noblemen are going to appreciate and that any sensible human would think ridiculous. And this itself seems to kind of show the lie of what's happening in both of these cases. Like, yes, I am willing to totally buy what Tolstoy is selling here. This idea that, yes, a perverted sense of artistic appreciation has infected these people, which, you know, we might very well use that term ironically in this situation, has infected these people and now they are all possessed by this, you know, perverse artistic appreciation. They think Wagner is something meaningful when in fact it isn't. Um, they are moved by his pompousness, by his grandiosity, when in fact it's all just smoke and mirrors, it's all just noise, sound and fury signifying nothing. Um, it is not, according to Tolstoy, communicating true emotion. But at the same time, if you can use the same argument to say this is appealing to the emotions of a, you know, populist majority and not to the refined sensations of a truly, you know, noble artistic appreciation, where the heck is the truth then? Where the heck is natural art, as Tolstoy seems to be emphasizing here? Or is there none? Is this a null-like matrix here? Is there any room left for some kind of true art that isn't in some way counterfeit, that isn't the product of some sort of artificiality, whether it's pandering to a, you know, like, un, uh, undeveloped taste or consequent or contradictorily pandering to an overdeveloped taste. 
this is rough. And this idea is not exactly what I wanted to get into immediately, but it is sort of what I've fallen into. Let's talk about the difference between elitism and populism. Because on the one hand, you're going to hear criticism on both ends here. You are going to find contemporary film critics who are saying exactly the same thing about many of the movies that we encounter. This movie is pretentious schlock. It is going to be unduly celebrated by, you know, art critics and film critics. It's Oscar bait in some sense. Where on the flip side, you're going to have very, in some cases, very different movies, or in some cases, very much the same movies, being criticized as being populist, unnecessarily sentimental, like trashy and cliched. Like, honestly, I suspect that the exact same sort of weird dichotomy we're seeing here between Tolstoy criticizing Wagner and Nietzsche criticizing Wagner because of the various, like, falseness of art that is going on could very much be applied to Steven Spielberg's recent movie, The Fablemans. People are, on the one hand, accusing it of being sentimentalist, emotional trash, you know, appealing to a populist, you know sensibility and not actually getting at anything meaningful or truthful because Spielberg always does this sort of emotional populist manipulative trash whereas you're also going to have a whole bunch of art critics saying actually this is trash because it is just clearly Oscar bait trying to pander to the sensibilities of art aficionados and film buffs and you know the academy who only appreciates like movies about movies and all of this crazy highfalutin you know, elitist nonsense. We're in the same boat there. And what I'm trying to express here is that it's all gotta be bullshit. Like, there's no way that you can justify to me criticizing the same movie on both sides of this axis. The, it is for everybody and therefore not worth your time, or it is for just a select few and therefore not worth your time. There's no way that the same work of art can be subject to both criticism simultaneously without there being a problem with the critics more than there is with the art necessarily. Like, maybe it's true that Wagner is one or the other extreme, but he can't be both. He can't be pandering to both demographics. Or if he is, you gotta give me more than this. Because at this point we're just dealing with this kind of rough definition. When I understand art in this way, I tend to understand it not as being inherently moral or immoral because it panders to one or another class, one or another set of tastes. Like Tolstoy said right from the outset here, taste is off the table. It is too difficult to sort of wrap our brain around. Too many people disagree about what it actually means. If we're basing our artistic criticism on taste, we're already working with something that we can't hold. There's nothing concrete here. So if we take the concrete philosophy that we were working with originally, here is Wagner's, you know, ring opera. Does it in fact foster unity? Is it in fact communicating some sort of artistic feeling? Then we've got at least something to work with. We can in fact criticize it if in fact it isn't doing that, but it is kind of hard to make that case. Wagner is clearly trying to communicate something. There is some kind of feeling going on here. Maybe it's overly sentimental, maybe it's overly bombastic, maybe it's, you know, too highfalutin, who knows? Something is being communicated. Something is coming across. 
And while Tolstoy clearly isn't feeling it, and Nietzsche clearly isn't feeling it, isn't it as possible that they are the ones looking for a reason to be disappointed, disgusted because of their own personal philosophies, and not because of something inherent in the work? I honestly couldn't tell you, one way or the other, whether Wagner is great art or not. I am impressed with his orchestration. I have never seen the opera itself performed, if only because it's huge. Like, this is a four-night ordeal with, like, multiple four-hour sessions for this thing to be adequately performed. I haven't seen this thing performed. I've just heard snatches. I think I heard the whole thing at work, uh, like, the whole orchestral score thing at one point. Um, like, start to finish, I just did it. Like, I actually did go through each section of the opera and listen to the entire four-hour thing over the course of four nights. And I was impressed. Like, the whole thing wasn't blowing my mind, but there were certainly passages, like the, you know, big finale, Goddardamerung, or more, uh, like, when certain parts of, of where, like, Siegfried gets his sword or something. I was totally in, into it at that point. Like, maybe not the whole thing, but... I also can't say I've ever really talked extensively with someone who has seen the whole thing. Like, I have one person in my entire career. Like, I'm 35 years old. I've talked to a lot of people about art, and Wagner is one of the things I'm kind of interested in. I think I know one person, maybe two, who has actually seen the opera start to finish, and definitely only one person has ever recommended it. Like, that's it. So either this is kind of on the outs as far as artistic productions go, but it has some merit for those who appreciate it? I don't know. The problem at this point, though, isn't whatever Nietzsche is arguing about, whatever Tolstoy is arguing about. The problem at this point is the friggin' medium. Nobody watches opera anymore. Like, I watched John Giovanni start to finish in order to properly teach it in my class, and I've, you know, taken a crack at a couple of other operas here and there, but, I mean, they're not performing them terribly frequently. I can't go down to the local community theater and see Wagner being performed. Um, like, if I do, in fact, want to go see Wagner, it probably means a whole lot of money in order to go to a city where it's being performed, show up for tickets night after night after night for what is almost certainly a limited performance, because, again, it's got a very limited audience here. Which honestly brings us right back around to Tolstoy's first criticism, that this is elitist because only a certain number of people are going to appreciate it, because only a certain number of people can afford it. But these are different problems. So on the one hand, let's kind of abandon the whole, like, sentimental populist versus, like, overly complicated elitist axis because I really don't think we're going to get to any real moral discussion through that alone. Like, yes, I agree with Tolstoy that art shouldn't be exclusive. No, I'm not entirely sure that Wagner is the place to sort of point out how exclusive it actually is. The problem then becomes, okay, so is, it, is art less because it is dedicated or available or exclusive to only a few? And that I'd feel pretty comfortable saying, yeah, that's a problem. There is a moral dimension there. If, in fact, you are producing a work of art 
that is only going to be accessible to a select few, that will be deliberately excluding large groups of people, or that are only being produced for a handful of people who very clearly have money, that's a problem. But not because of its artistic integrity or its artistic pretensions, but because of its commercial pretensions in this case. So let's break this discussion down. Let's take apart the classist criticism that Tolstoy is leveling at Wagner and instead break it down into several smaller criticisms. Not about the subject of the play, but about the execution of the play. On the one hand, we should talk medium here. Like, this is something that Wagner isn't himself necessarily guilty of. On the one hand, we have to recognize that even in Wagner's day, opera was an exclusive medium, and that by working in this exclusive medium, Wagner was deliberately limiting himself and thus cutting off a wide variety of people who could theoretically have appreciated this and is thus culpable to the, the, the judgment that he is in fact only performing for rich people and therefore is effectively being a sellout here. Um, that's to some degree warranted. But let us assume, for the sake of argument, because I assume this thing exists somewhere, that somebody has made a, like, reasonably priced DVD collection of Wagner's opera. That you can, like, drop 20 bucks, maybe 30, maybe more, maybe less, and get for yourself the entire ring cycle start to finish and watch it at your own discretion. If we take that factor out of consideration if we look at Wagner as something that could, in fact, be radically reproduced, you know, just like I can listen to the music because it's super cheap to download it from, you know, various databases or find it on Spotify or, you know, in my antiquated sense, just buy it on iTunes and then listen to it for, like, 75 cents. In that sense, I don't have a problem here at all, whatsoever. It's good music, as far as I'm concerned, and I am definitely not schooled enough in music to say that, like, only certain people are going to appreciate it. That's probably true, but in this case it's a historical accident. The fact that contemporary audiences aren't listening to 19th century classical music, they're listening to 21st century popular music. Um, yes, it is restricted for them from them, but that's not Wagner's fault, because Wagner was presenting music to people who appreciated his kind of music in his day. So I don't see an immorality in the artistic production itself, on its face. I don't have a problem with someone putting on a reproduction of Wagner's Ring Cycle, especially if they're going to then release it on DVD, which, again, would be the commercially smart and savvy thing to do, at least in theory, if there's enough of a market to warrant it. Um, so we have, on the one hand, the, the expense dimension of the elitist. On the other hand, we have the obscurity dimension. Is Wagner deliberately producing a work of art that is, by its very nature, in its very content, restricted from certain audiences? Is he pulling a Baudelaire, in short? Is he deliberately obfuscating his meaning in order to hide it from the uninitiated? And, again, it's really hard to say that about Wagner. It's really easy to say it about Baudelaire, again, because Baudelaire very much said it himself about his own work, and Tolstoy doesn't even need to, like, you know, say it as a judgment. He can just repeat what Baudelaire himself said. Um, but I don't think Wagner necessarily is doing that. 
Are there musicians who are? Oh, sure, for like no question in my mind. Especially nowadays, if a contemporary musician is producing a you know, symphony that is only going to perf be performed at certain places or at certain times, that is only going to be available to certain listeners, that is, in fact, against the current popular taste, because the popular taste doesn't appreciate classical music, yeah, we might have some moral objections to that. In the same way that we might object to, say, Dark Souls for creating a video game experience that only certain people with a certain amount of time or certain amount of skill level will be able to appreciate. That's not necessarily saying that it's bad to do that, or that catering to a specific minority is in fact wrong in any way, but it is saying that by excluding people, you are now entering into Tolstoy's moral judgment by saying that there is a certain amount of unity that we are not interested in following. By limiting the number of people who can appreciate this work of art, whether a difficult video game or a very abstract painting or a musical number that is like intentionally disharmonic or you know very much rooted in a tradition that only a few people have access to whatever the case may be by delivering it only to a handful of people you are in fact cutting yourself off from others you are in fact drawing lines between people instead of bringing them together in some respect but that is, again, not to say that the work is, by its nature, on its face, immoral. It's just diminished in some sense. It is less than it would have been otherwise if you could have somehow found a way to communicate the same thing in a way that appeals to everyone, in a way that communicates the same idea across the board. Which brings us right back to that distinction. The populist versus the elitist. Because on the one hand, I do tend to think that the barrier to entry creates a sort of moral problem for a lot of these works of art. If, in fact, your video game is unplayable unless you have a certain amount of programming skills, that might be a problem. And I might accuse you of being immoral in some sense, of, ex of deliberately and sort of like elitistly excluding certain people from appreciating whatever it is that you thought was important to say, or rather you saying that the thing that I have to say is not important enough for everyone to hear, but only important enough for a select few. Like, there's a problem there if you are reaching out only to, you know, a handful of other people on the, the sort of hope that they will all rally around you and all sort of revel in your separation from the masses. But on the other hand, we also talk about the morality of, quote, selling out as not just to rich people. Obviously, the more common way of saying that you are selling out is you are taking something that was originally unique and kind of distinct, something that was, in fact, directed towards people who appreciated only certain things and made it more broad, more open, more widespread. Both criticisms you will hear. And on the one hand, when I hear both at the same time, like I do about Wagner with Tolstoy and Nietzsche, as I do with like the Fablemans from you know various sort of art critics from various different stripes, when we apply this to something like music, it becomes kind of more obvious. Selling out your sound, selling out your band in order to get a larger audience so you can make more money is frowned upon. 
but at the same time making music that is so freaking obscure and so totally, like, removed from common experience is also kind of frowned upon. Like, if your musical opus is tuning five radios to different stations and just letting everybody listen to this for 45 minutes and then calling it art, that's a problem, too. The ability to interpret and appreciate that will be limited to a very select handful, and it is very much more, as Tolstoy would put it, interesting than actually artistically meritorious. Which is why I like to think of this as a spectrum the sort of elitist versus populist spectrum. The fact of the matter is, I think that there are some truths, some messages, some feelings, as Tolstoy would put it, that cannot be reached casually. And I am not saying that as some sort of elitist saying that, like, if you aren't willing to work for your art, then you aren't willing to, you know, appreciate the true nature of human experience or whatever. That is not what I'm saying here. What I am saying is that Baudelaire has a point. When he says that some poems are supposed to be a puzzle, I'm resistant to that idea, but overall okay with it. Because sometimes solving a puzzle communicates a feeling, communicates a sense of satisfaction that you can't get if you're not willing to put some work into it. Um, since Dark Souls is usually my whipping boy in this case, let's turn away from that for the moment. Let's talk about Baba is You, a puzzle game. Um, like, it is very obvious on its face what Baba is You is all about. You get to change the rules surrounding the puzzle in the midst of the puzzle. It is like a meta-puzzle game. Um, and some of the puzzles are freaking hard. To the point that I have not beaten Baba as you. I don't have either the intellectual capacity or patience or whatever is necessary to do that based on, you know, all the other stuff that I'm doing in my life. But I don't have a problem with it. I am not, like, judging it on the grounds of classism. I am not, you know, making the same arguments, like, that I frequently am about other video games or about other works of art that are deliberately exclusive. I'm not arguing with it the same way that I'm arguing with Baudelaire, because I recognize what it's trying to accomplish. It's trying to make you feel good. It's trying to make you feel good by overcoming these obstacles, by thinking in new ways around things, by basically making you a better person. I don't have a problem with that. It's not even asking for, you know, some massive quantity of time the way that something like Dark Souls is. It doesn't punish you for failure the way that Dark Souls does. And as a consequence, I look at it and I say, maybe it's not for me, but I don't have a problem with its morality, that's for sure. It is exclusive. It deliberately excludes the people who are not going to work at it, including, in this case, me. But I look at it and I say good for you anyway. There's no way you could communicate that feeling of satisfaction, that sort of world-breaking, you know, manipulation of the rules without it being something that the audience, the player, has to actually work for. And I think video games are a really good example in this case. On the one hand, this, you know, obscurity dimension of the elitist populist access, access is something that we need to talk about, and we need to recognize that there are certain things that can be communicated honestly and sincerely and according to all of the truths that, you know, Tolstoy is emphasizing here, but do in fact also exclude. Some feelings 
are to be shared through accomplishment, through the actual business of overcoming obstacles, through solving the mystery in some sense. Whether it's a poem like Baudelaire's, or a puzzle like Baba is used, or some elaborate, sophisticated art film filled with semiotic meaning that only a handful of people are necessarily going to be able to interpret on its face. I get that in order to communicate certain truths, there are going to be certain people who are not going to sit to the end. There are going to be people who miss the point. There are even going to be people who occasionally misinterpret it and come up with a wildly different idea of what it's supposed to be about. That is also known to happen, and probably we'll end up talking about that more as we go along once we do in fact get to the sort of collision between mass media and, you know, elite art, as Tolstoy very much isn't here. So on the one hand, I, again, recognize that there is a moral dimension to the barrier to entry, that there is a sort of exclusiveness there, an elitism there, and as a consequence you have to tread with caution in this case. But I also recognize it can be a good thing. There can be reasons for this. You can produce a work of art that needs to be exclusive in some way. Because if we do, in fact, just communicate what everybody knows and what everybody appreciates and what everybody should hear, that isn't necessarily going to hit at some of the more sophisticated ideas that we do, in fact, want to even crave to communicate. And on the other hand, we should recognize that if there is a certain amount of virtue in expecting something from your audience, there is also a certain amount of laziness in feeding your audience what it wants. If we have a moral dimension to the elitist cutting off of certain people who aren't willing to work hard enough or think hard enough or have the sort of critical apparatus to appreciate the artistic statement that you're making, if we are going to judge it according to that and say it may not be, you know, it diminishes your work to cut these people off from it, we also have to recognize that it can totally diminish your work to dumb it down, to make it something that everyone can just ex access immediately. It can definitely diminish your work to just feed what a person wants back to them. You know, just as much as we might criticize some sophisticated work of art like Dark Souls for, you know, deliberately requiring a certain skill level in order to uh, get past certain uh, obstacles, as much as I might criticize it as being classist, or as much as I might criticize it for, you know, inspiring this sort of elitist gamer attitude where the only solution to how do I get past X problem is get good, as much as I might criticize From Software for doing that, the one thing I can't criticize From Software for doing is pandering. Like, no one is saying that Dark Souls is pandering. No one is trying to feed people a worthless power fantasy in order to make them feel better about themselves, even though they didn't do anything to deserve it. But you can totally say that about a lot of games that are easier. You can totally say that about movies like movies in the James Bond franchise that just are like, do you want to have sex and shoot people and, you know, do whatever you want and have no consequences for it? Well, here is a character that you can map yourself onto. Go nuts. Like... There is definitely a negative consequence there as well. Which again is why I like to refer to this as an axis. There are moral dangers on either side of the axis. 
exclude too many people, exclude an unnecessary amount of people, and you do contribute to this sort of elitist gatekeeping mentality, something that Tolstoy is very conscious of and very upset about. But Tolstoy doesn't see what happens when you just feed people their stupid crap back to them. He is a little attentive to it. He notes that, like, everybody likes to hear a story about a strong character, and on the one hand, he does even probe at the possibility that certain peasant stories do seem pandering, that, you know, people are telling the peasant stories to make them behave in certain ways and manipulate them into doing certain things. He is attentive to it, but he doesn't develop that idea. But today, we see a lot more of that. We see a lot more art that is willing to just pander to certain ideas or sensibilities, and that can, in fact, contribute to pretty toxic environments and toxic behaviors. You know, if I can beat Dark Souls for, you know, contributing to an elitist mindset, I can also beat Call of Duty for contributing to this sort of American jingoistic military, you know, fetishizing attitude where, like, you just want to shoot people and get away with it and feel like a patriot for doing so, and it delivers consistently on this without terribly, deeply interrogating itself, at least not after the first handful of games. Both are morally culpable, although for radically different, even to some degree, diametrically opposed reasons. Where Tolstoy is right to criticize certain works of art for being elitist, Nietzsche is also right to criticize certain works of art for being pandering. Now, admittedly, Nietzsche's problem is something that we're going to like have to clarify and explore and qualify, because Nietzsche's definitely not saying it for the right reasons. Um, but nonetheless, the argument stands. There are problems with delivering a work of art that just gives people what they want without any question, or, you know, sort of unifying them all into this kind of brutish, mindless attitude, but there is also a problem with just shoving them out the door and telling them they're not, you know, invited to participate. Both are wrong. Now, I do, in fact, want to get back to what I initially sort of got on the Wagner train about in the first place, the fantasy elements. Tolstoy is upset about the fantasy elements. He's angry that there are dwarves. Because that means that there is somebody walking around on stage, like, with their knees bent all the time in a very artificial and sort of, like, distracting way. Um, there are these made-up stupid languages that are apparently are being spoken by the dwarves as they beat their hammers or run out of the stage or whatever. There are magic swords, and there are magic rings, and the rules of this universe aren't terribly transparent to Tolstoy. And, on the one hand... Tolstoy is, right to be, is likely right to be grumpy about this. It could be bad artifice. I do want to entertain that possibility. But I also want to recognize here in the 21st century, we do have a lot of better tools to talk about this than we did back in the 19th. You know, Wagner is essentially creating a work of fantasy here. Like, it is rooted in mythology, it is rooted in German tradition, um, and we should appreciate that and recognize that Tolstoy is right when, we, when he says that, you know, Wagner is mimicking certain elements of other works of art. But we also need to recognize that, you know, Tolstoy is doing, or Tolstoy, as much as he is angry about it, isn't living in the age where Tolkien is doing the same thing, and it really is artistically impressive, and is, for that matter, contributing to the same morality that Tolstoy is trying to get across here. 
fantasy isn't a disqualifying characteristic of art, at least not here in the 21st century. Now that said, I expect that like if in fact some person who really does care about art and is a real deal art critic heard this, which they probably won't because they'll never listen to my crap, um, is that, yeah, fantasy is marginalized for a reason. Fantasy is crap art. Fantasy is not, in fact, good art and should be rightly disqualified by Tolstoy, though maybe not for the specific reasons that Tolstoy comes up with here. But for this, I kind of find myself once again in an Axis territory. Like, as much as the elitism-populism axis has, like, immorality on both sides, here we have a sort of realism and stylization axis. And once again, there are dangers to both. Now, there might not necessarily be moral dangers in most cases. We usually understand this as having to do with genre trappings, like, you know, the reason why there are dwarves and elves and, you know... Wagner is because this was typical of the myths that Wagner was pulling from, and at this point these are just genre trappings of the fantasy genre in general, you know, as pioneered by the likes of, you know, MacDonald or Dunsany or Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or whoever. You know, we've seen dwarves before. We don't have the same reaction to them that Tolstoy would because there wasn't a genre to sort of place them in. And on the one hand, we should look at this and say, hold on, wait a second, isn't genre itself exclusive? Aren't there rules here? Aren't there trappings here? Aren't we saying, you know, because this is a fantasy work, some people are just not invited to this party, or if they are invited to this party, then they're supposed to have a certain amount of knowledge going into it. Aren't we just back in elitism populism territory? Yes and no. It's complicated. For sure we should be looking at this and saying that a work of art is not disqualified by the genre elements that it incorporates. What we should be asking instead is, what are we doing with the genre? Are we, in fact, enslaving our message to this genre? Are we, in fact, you know, incorporating ridiculous elements like elves and dwarves and stuff that is not here because, you know, they mean something to our artist or communicate something that is crucial to the work of art overall, but are they just included because you're supposed to have elves and dwarves here? Are they token genre concessions rather than components of your overall message? Fantasy, I should stress, can do some awesome art work in the sense that Tolstoy expects art to communicate feeling, to foster unity, etc. For Tolkien, his fantasy is meant to communicate religious truth. The fact that there is a god overlooking the entire universe, that the world will turn out well in the end. Truths that in fact resonate with everybody, that unite us all together, that encourage brotherhood, all that good stuff. But at the same time, there are many imitators of Tolkien. Grief. I've got to find artists and people to talk about who have different first syllables. There are people who are mimicking Tolkien in the same way that Wagner is being accused of mimicking the myths that he is drawing from. And we need to recognize that that is, to some degree, compromising. That there is a difference between I am incorporating this for my own reasons and I am incorporating this because it is a genre trope. Using the trope cleverly can contribute to an overall message. In that case, it's frequently forgivable. 
But if you are just incorporating it because you find it interesting or because it is aesthetic in the same way that Tolstoy is offended by Wagner using dwarves because dwarves are, quote, poetic, because dwarves are, quote, you know, imitating some original thing that is supposedly artistically meritorious, even though Tolstoy doesn't know why, that's where the problem lies. On the one hand, I find it really fascinating that Tolstoy is against dwarves, that he is against nonsense languages, that he is against fantastic elements, where at the same time, when in fact he is like raising up certain works of art as being like perfect examples of communicating religious sentiment, he is often pointing to myth to do that. The story of Joseph, the story of Genesis, the Iliad, the Odyssey, these incorporate a lot of the same fantastic elements in various forms, but at the same time Tolstoy doesn't criticize them on that ground. What I suspect Tolstoy is in fact pointing to then, if we read it from this angle rather than you know, the imitation that Tolstoy is talking about. You know, Tolstoy even raises the possibility, well, you can't write the Odyssey today. And that's true. Except you can. Tolkien did it in The Lord of the Rings. Like, it can be done. You can create myths that are still myths today. And I honestly suspect that if Tol Tolstoy good grief, if Tolstoy had encountered honest-to-God fantasy, something that was not, you know, with all the sound and fury of Wagnerian profundity, all that romantic bluster like we see in Goethe or Wagner, he probably would have been able to appreciate it better. He even says as much elsewhere. Remember that the very first essay we read of Tolstoy's was him talking to a bunch of schoolboys after having read Gogol's own retelling of the myth V. Myths can be very powerful. In fact, Tolstoy seems to hold them up as some of the most powerful art there is. It's just, are you putting on a show? Are you, like, unnecessarily embellishing this myth? Are you referring to it because it is mythic, or do you, in fact, have something to say in your retelling? Do you, in fact, have something you're trying to communicate in your fantastic elements? Tolkien did. Wagner, maybe not so much. Wagner's sound and fury might have not profited as much from the fantastic elements. Maybe he incorporated gnomes just because he liked gnomes, and not because he thought that there was some deep, meaningful truth that he was trying to get at there. In some sense, I think Tolstoy is in the right on this, but I also want to differentiate. It's not the fantasy that's the problem. It's not the gnomes or the mythic elements. It's not these fantastic speculative genre elements. It's not the genre trappings. I think what Tolstoy is upset by is the fact that it is fake here. Painfully fake here. Like, as much as, yes, I will defend fantasy, you will note that most contemporary theatrical productions have kind of gotten away from it. Or if they do use it, they try and de sort of like, how do I put this? They are no longer interested in the level of complex stage, like, effects the way that Wagner did Once Upon a Time. Like, either you've got fantasy in the form of movies where elaborate special effects can be, like, orchestrated in order to make it that much more realistic. You know, maybe we do think that old, like, 60s fantasy or 50s science fiction serials are hokey and campy and dumb, 
But at the same time, now that there is a level of fidelity that we can see in works like Star Wars or in the Marvel movies or whatever, we are less likely to judge them on those grounds. We're okay with the talking raccoon in our movie, because as ridiculous as that is, it is believable in the context of what we are seeing. It is as real as any of the other stuff that we're seeing around us. On the one hand, we might then be, like, we might now be in technical territory rather than moral territory, like, should you just not do art if you can't do it convincingly? And I honestly suspect that's kind of the right answer here. Like, Wagner is pushing the bounds of his art form, which is good, but he is definitely exceeding its limits, which is bad. If you are, in fact, going to put on a stage production and you're going to expect to have dwarves and elves and so on and so forth, you're going to have to tread carefully. You're going to have to find some way to make it believable, either by ridiculous stylization or by just ignoring all those differences, and people are going to call you out on it, and people are going to say that it's dumb, and you are culpable for that. It is correct for them to say that. It is correct for them to say that you've done a bad job here, in some sense, and as a consequence, once again, your message is diminished, and you are morally culpable as well. So, we've got now several things that we've covered. We talked about nudity, and how Tolstoy is against nudity, and how really it's more complicated, and really we need to talk about the dangers rather than the outright immorality of the thing. We talked about the, the elitism axis, the elitist versus the populist, uh, both in a sort of commercial sense, but also in the sense of, like, a, you know, pandering to your audience and making, just for the purposes of making money, versus making your message so obscure that only a few people can access it and thus, like, separate, you know, people into factions or groups, which is also potentially bad. We talked about the fantastic element and how that, too, exists on this axis where, you know, you go too far into realism and people will start to take it more seriously than it may necessarily be. Like, you know, if you, in fact, argue realistically that, like, all people of a certain marginalized group are bad for some reason and you make it very convincing and make it very realistic that's as much a problem as you know like honestly that's more of a problem than if your movie is ridiculous and nobody takes it seriously at all um that access to we should definitely pay attention to here um but there's one other thing that I do, in fact, want to talk about to sort of close us out here. Like, in addition to all of these axes and these, you know, various dimensions of morality, things that Tolstoy was wrestling with and things that do, in fact, have contemporary applications as well, although, again, we've kind of characterized it differently and should appreciate it differently now that we have, in fact, seen these sorts of interactions between these different media um, a little bit more than Tolstoy had the opportunity to in his day. The last thing that I do want to talk about, though, is, is friggin' nature. Um, on the one hand, Tolstoy is kind of attacking Nietzsche by addressing this sort of elitist attitude. He sees Baudelaire, he sees Wagner, he sees, you know, these various artists with their deliberate obscurity and their intentional elitism as being sort of an offshoot of Nietzschean will-to-power philosophy, where, like, the Superman appreciates good art, but the, the last man is just, you know, seething masses and should not be pandered to. Um, on the one hand, we've sort of addressed that. On the other, I do want to address that this is a different entity. Um, talking about the difference, the elitist versus populist spectrum, 
and the dangers that sort of exist on either side of that spectrum is one thing. But Nietzsche is, in fact, saying there are superhumans. There are people who are better than others. And that we should deliberately separate ourselves, we supermen, we elites, from the bourgeoisie and from the lower class. They are beneath us in some sense. And while we may disagree about who constitutes that elite class, we may disagree about who constitutes that bourgeoisie, we may debate whether, you know, Wagner is in fact high class or low class, whatever. At the end of the day, I do want to address this because Tolstoy does, and Tolstoy is legitimately mad, and for good reason. Um, Nietzsche is friggin' toxic on this front. Like, as much as there is a lot out there about how great many of Nietzsche's ideas are, and as much as Nietzsche's ideas have contributed to a lot of great breakthroughs and is sort of the foundation of postmodernism, which has very much undone a lot of the sort of objectionable, like, excesses of modernism, we also need to recognize that Nietzsche was just an elitist dick, um, and that his morality is, at best, obscure and, like countercultural and at worst downright objectifying and elitist and like empowering to some of the worst elements of contemporary society. Nietzsche was an apologist for, you know, people who like he was an apologist for Napoleon. Let's let's put it at that. He was an apologist for tyrants and self-made heroes and edgelords in some sense and is can still employed by them to this very day. That is a problem. And Tolstoy is absolutely right to oppose that with every fiber of his being, even if he does go overboard in doing so. But there is one thing that I do at least want to open up the possibility of discussing later on in this whole business. And I do want to get at the possibility that there is a refined artistic appreciation out there that I just do not have. Like, on the one hand, I've kind of, you know, I, I had in introduced this whole discussion by saying that I am worried about my own perverse taste, taste in art, that I, too, am a product of a society that, like, has overvalued certain artists, considers them, you know like, impossible to touch and greater than all of the other artists, even though the, the actual reasoning for that is is illegitimate. Um, I am willing to entertain that possibility that I, too, have been perverted. But at the end of the day, I don't think most of the great artists that I tend to hold up as being perfect examples of artists are in that category. I don't think Dante belongs to that category. Because I think Dante is trying to communicate something deep and true and meaningful, namely that... Whether for better or worse, he sees the world, the universe, as being just and justly organized. He is trying to separate the bad from the good in his own culture and understand what makes morality morality. Uh, likewise, I don't think Shakespeare is immoral. I've read a few of his plays that definitely lean on the side of immorality. Shakespeare has his cynical moments. Um, you know, plays like All's Well That Ends Well are pretty mean in a lot of ways. But at the same time, the clarity of his vision is hard to deny. 
he is not presenting all's well that ends well as, you know, one play in a vacuum. He is very much presenting it given these characters who are kind of absurd and mean-spirited and cruel, and emphasizing that sometimes that mean-spirited cruelty does in fact win out. Not all the time, at no point does Shakespeare seem to suggest that, but some of the time it does happen, and we should definitely call out bitterness and pettiness for being what it is. You know, Shakespeare is trenchantly moral, even when he is at his most cynical. He is not saying, you know, all of these people are terrible and we should just, like, accept it and move on with our lives, the way that Moliere sometimes actually does. But rather, he is saying, these are terrible people and these they should all be punished, but they're not, and that sucks. And I don't have a problem with that particular moral judgment. Um, I'm not sure why Tolstoy does. Like, and this is the most generous I could be. Like, Tolstoy is also emphasizing that, like, Hamlet is wrong in some way. Honestly, I think at the end of the day, what Tolstoy has a problem here, the reason why Tolstoy picks out Shakespeare, Dante, Beethoven's Ninth, a lot of these works of art, is not so much because they are somehow morally bankrupt according to his standards, according to that idea that it's supposed to communicate feeling, but and also that it's supposed to... Um, like, communicate unity. I think both Shakespeare and Dante and Beethoven, and I think all of these artists are doing that. I think the problem here is that in Tolstoy's own time, that's not what they're being used for. Shakespeare is an elite person's art in Tolstoy's day. Honestly, he's an elite person's art in our day, is, in our day too. Most productions of Shakespeare are not being visited by, you know, your average folks on the street. But the average folks on the street can appreciate it, are encouraged to appreciate it. It isn't artificial to say, you know, there is something powerful about the truths communicated in Romeo and Juliet, or in King Lear, or in half of Shakespeare's greater works. And many reproductions in film and elsewhere are frequented by people other than just pure Shakespeare scholars. Like, there are a lot of people who appreciate Shakespeare. It's not just an elite thing. It's not so gated that nobody can like this stuff. If you tell a Shakespeare story right, anyone can enjoy it. Even if it is even if you have to dump the Elizabethan prose to do it sometimes. Like when Baz Luhrmann does Romeo plus Juliet, people watch it. People enjoy it. It may not be the best rendition of Shakespeare out there, but it does show us that Shakespeare still applies and appeals. Um, so I think Tolstoy is being a little unfair there. But at the same time, I see his argument. When we teach Shakespeare, we do it so badly so much of the time. We emphasize its, you know, like, nether territory, like, super awesome status, and we turn it into this hallowed ground as though, you know, Shakespeare is just, you know, inaccessible in his own right, and, like, he is the standard by which we judge. And that's just not true. But you can teach Shakespeare to be something else. You can teach Shakespeare and make it accessible. You can teach Shakespeare and show those moral truths that he is emphasizing. You can get at the underlying meaning there, because it is there, and it is passionate, and it is well felt. That's what makes him great. So when it is done wrong, yeah, it's bad art. When it is done right, it can be incredibly powerful. But again, that's kind of what I was trying to get at with Nietzsche, not so much, I guess, but 
there shouldn't be a fundamental gatekeeping attitude for this elitist versus non-elitist attitude. Like, if in fact somebody says, you know, anyone who likes The Matrix has bad taste in art, or anyone who likes, I don't know, the Marvel movies has bad taste in art, I think that that's unnecessarily reductive. I think that is an immoral, critical stance to take. And you'll note that Tolstoy calls out the critics here. As much as we were talking about morality and art and morality and literature specifically, we should definitely extend that to include moral criticism as we go on through this class. But moral criticism shouldn't exclude a work of art purely on the grounds that it is in some way commercial or low. That's what I'm trying to get at here. Nietzsche thought certain kinds of art were disqualified from being great simply on the grounds that they were appreciated by the common folk. That an, un, like, an untrained palate could successfully appreciate this art. That's what's wrong. That's what Tolstoy is angry about. That's where I agree. I agree that Baudelaire is an elitist jerk. And that what Baudelaire has to offer as far as his artistic you know, integrity hasn't been demonstrated to me enough for me to, like, actually go out and seek out his work. If there is truth, yes, it can somehow, it can sometimes be necessary to obscure it in some way. Sometimes the audience should work for the artistic truth that you were trying to convey, because it may not be possible to convey it otherwise. But that's as far as I'm going. That is as far as I will go into elitist territory. I will not at any point say that there is some kind of low art versus high art, unless I am parroting some thinker's ideas in an attempt to explain it. In that sense, I'm definitely on Tolstoy's side. The peasants should not be disqualified from art the way that Nietzsche frequently would. Low art can be great art, too. Art that is produced from a popular location, whether it is like folk tales or myths, or whether it's commercially produced Hollywood celluloid, can be great under the right circumstances. Either because it does what it's trying to do so well that we should admire it for its craft, or because it is in fact communicating something deeper and more meaningful in doing so, smuggling in your vegetables with your sugar. That's okay. And in fact, that can be just as great as any great work of art that is designed with some high intellectual goal in mind. Both of these should be valued. Just as there is danger on both sides of the populist and elite spectrum, there should be greatness on both the populist side and the elitist side of the spectrum. That's both where I agree with Tolstoy and disagree with him. Like, I agree with Tolstoy that good art can be found among the popular. I also agree with Nietzsche that good art can be found among the wealthy and elite. What I disagree with is that you can't find art on either end of that spectrum, if that makes sense. So there's as close to organization as we're going to get, and hopefully that'll open up quite a few of the discussions that we'll be running into later, both the prurient art and, like, the sort of getting close to pornography side of this discussion, the, the elitist versus populist axis, um, the realist versus, like, uh, stylization or genre trappings axis, 
as well as just not being on par with anyone who's trying to gatekeep art on either end of this discussion. Um, for next week, though, we're definitely going to be turning our attentions to a well-needed new writer and a well-needed new discussion. Uh, for next week, we're going to read Ortega y Gasset's essay, The Dehumanization of Art. And it's going to be a short one. Like, it's a short essay, so hopefully it'll also be a short lecture. But part of this discussion is I want to look at the 20th century art thing. Um, like, we are going to be jumping longer in time from Tolstoy to Maritain than we will at any other point during this artistic discussion because so many of our writers are in the post-war period. Um, in part because that is when that discussion of what is the moral value of art was really, like, picking up. Um, but I want to emphasize that this is in fact going on. It's just something that's happening by the artists in their art more than it is something that is happening by the artists in their sort of peripheral philosophical writings. So in addition to reading a Gort or Ortega y Gasset's essay, I do want us to be familiar with a lot of the 20th century art movements and art attitudes. This is a good time for us to get our primer to sort of review the main, like, really important works of the Dadaists or the Surrealists or the, you know, Cubists like Picasso, um, or the just creators of abstraction, whether it's Jackson Pollock or Paul Clay or Kandinsky or, you know, pick your favorite. The whole point of Gasset's essay is to talk about the value in removing humans from the artistic equation, which I find fascinating. Because on the one side, it is absolutely a slap in the face to Tolstoy, but on the other side, Gasset is making a compelling argument in a time that it needs to be made. So for next time, Gasset's essay, check out the 20th century art movements. Let's look at some of the more abstract and sort of like artistic or sort of, I don't know, intellectually artistic, the deconstructed artistic world. Um, and I look forward to talking about it with you next week. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress, this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the internet, or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkozlowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year, um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.